0: Welcome everybody to Deconstructor of Fun Podcast. Today, we are going to talk about Valorant. Topics we're going to cover today is how Valorant got started, how it was made, essentially a production process. How was the uh, launch of the game, especially zooming in on the Twitch code drop campaign. We're going to also cover how COVID affected the development of the game. Then we're going to talk about, naturally, as always with ride, we're going to talk about community and how they leverage the community, both in making the game as well as scaling the game. And we are going to talk about the growth. And this podcast, I'm joined by two amazing people. So first, Paul Beleza, who's like the fifth time on the podcast. We always love having him on, on the podcast. He's a senior producer working on Valorant. He joined Valorant actually as they ramped up into full production, working on the character team and upcoming feature team. Prior to Valorant, he had spent ten years on League of Legends, working on everything from in-game content to publishing, engineering, focus teams. He was actually Riot's first intern in two thousand six. So Paul is an OG, and the other OG we have is Joseph Joe Ziegler, who is the game director for Valorant. He was one of the original founders of the project, pitching it and developing it into the game it is today. So probably. Prior to leading Valorant, he was actually the lead champion designer on League of Legends from 2011 to 2013. And previous to Riot, Joe worked as a designer at Pandemic Studios. So two Riot OGs talking about how they made the game, talking about how Riot makes new games, and overall just really, really nice people. Um, I'm sure you're going to enjoy this podcast. I really, really enjoyed recording this and learned a lot. And before we jump into the content, a couple of messages from our awesome sponsors, IronSource and AppsFlyer. We all know it. Mobile marketing is going through a paradigm shift. With the industry moving towards a more aggregate way of measuring marketing efforts, marketers' ability to measure and understand the impact of their marketing investments is further curtailed. AppsFlyer though, is not sitting on the sidelines. The company has set a goal to help their customers and the entire mobile ecosystem to successfully navigate the new era of mobile marketing. And that's where AppsFlyer's latest product, the Incrementality Solution, comes to play. It's a product that truly empowers marketers to gain a better understanding of the real value that their marketing efforts hold. AppsFlyer's Incrementality Solution is built around remarketing, it simplifies the process of designing, executing, and analyzing incremental lift tests at scale, which previously was something that only the biggest players on the market were able to do. With, increman- with incrementality, marketers can focus on the end goal of their test without actually having to worry about the heavy lifting that comes with it. To learn more about incrementality and to read the success stories from publishers like Kabam, I suggest that you head out to appslyers.com. Really at Jam City, we want to treat the players first and foremost. We really care about their experiences. That comes down to ad quality and what type of ads they're seeing. We want to make sure that the performance is there. Waterfall management does take a lot of time. The big drawback is the back and forth with networks, obviously the uh, analysis behind it. And not always is the juice worth the squeeze, so to speak. That was Kyle. Kyle is the senior director of ad monetization from Jam City, and he uses Source's platform to automate his monetization and grow
1: game revenue.
0: That is time that is really maximized and could theoretically be a 50 to 100% to 2x increase in overall ad revenue. Theoretically, level play just automates a lot of that. That is a huge time sink for a lot of our teams. Want to grow like Jam City? Get the SDK on IronSrc.com. That's ironsl All right. Uh, so, so as we're speaking, like we have two type of retention curves for a podcast. The one is flat, where 85% of the people who start listen to the last minute of the podcast. And then we have the other one. So now we're trying to something where we have the 85% and she's going to mm-hmm. start in hot. So okay. we're just joking around a lot about how badly I suck in Valorant. So I just scheduled this podcast to to get personal gains in my Valorant game because our investor is obsessed with it. So I kind of have to up my game a little bit. But anyway, enough of me. Welcome, Paul. Welcome back, Paul. This is probably your like fourth or fifth time.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Been with you guys a few awesome.
0: times now now paul's hair is just getting better every episode so i just can't <laughs> wait till we get I mean, on the episode 10 he'd be like wwe hair
2: no 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 the, the long one.
1: Oh yeah i'll get a mullet for you guys yeah. next time you the got it man. i actually
2: yeah. think you're gonna end up with one of those like yakuza Sozoku kind of things where Ooh. you have like the huge pompadour in the front you know? secretly
1: get... that is what i'm going for I'm not gonna <laughs> lie
0: <laughs> luckily mm. nobody heard that now so so when you get that hair it won't be a surprise mm. and then we have Joe Ziegler so welcome Joe
2: oh thank you for having me
0: awesome so uh Paul you're head the production for Valorant and Joe you're the game director am I correct
1: yep almost oh so Joe is is the game director for sure I am not the head of production I am one of (laughs) one of the well, producers of
0: the project. Officially, we already made you one, so it's time to step up. Now. <laughs> no, no I, I'll, I'll take
1: thank, a promotion
2: you. on, on Battlefield. Battlefield promotion.
1: No, the the executive producer of the project is Anna Donlin, and uh, the lead producer is Deke Waters, and I work for both of them. So they're great. They're great folks. Awesome, awesome. Um, so
0: you guys have been on the product on on the project since the beginning. Am I am I correct? Joe
2: has. Uh, yeah, I've been on the project since, the, since we started it, since day one, yeah.
0: So can you talk about, like, how did you guys get started? Like, because this is the interesting part for me. Like, you know, most of the projects get started because it's a fun game. Let's do this, so forth. But this is Riot. So you got League of Legends. And those are <laughs> ginormous, legendary boots to fill. So I'm just curious on on how, how does a game idea start at Riot? And I know that you guys have been going through multiple, you know, amazing ideas. And you have... Mm-hmm huge incubator for ideas and and most talented people working on them but how did this game particularly get started and how did it ride through the um the waves of doubt that always exists in large organizations (laughs) i like that term
2: waves of doubt (laughs) also known as green light (laughs) meetings (laughs) exactly green light meetings are very much that um yeah so it's it's actually really weird because i think every game uh, well, every game in the history of gaming starts very bizarrely and differently. I think ours is no different in that sense, but in its own unique way, uh, it started sort of from multiple different angles at, uh, early, like when we started the project, which was about seven years ago now, which is crazy to think about it. It's been a long project as we've sort of been developing it, but around seven years ago, uh, there was a desire to make multiple different new games at Riot. There definitely was. You know, Mark and Brandon, who've been working on, who been sort of who started the company and who really kicked off League of Legends, uh, were definitely in the space of what do we create next or what do we begin to add to our pool. We were really like ninety percent as a company focused on League of Legends, but we really wanted to also think about, hey, as we grow as a company, what other things do we want to bring to players? What other things really make sense for us to? sort of grow our, grow our player base around more than anything else. And at the time they were thinking in multiple different genres, for everything you could think of from, from the idea of like, oh, what you see now is Legends of Runeterra, which is sort of a deck builder card game all the way to something like what Valorant is more in the sense of it's a shooter kind of space. And so at the same time, um, myself, uh, a producer who used to work here named Stephen Lim, who was a senior producer here and uh, uh, Trevor Omlesky, who was a designer who used to work here, uh, Matt Malizia, who's an environment who used to work, uh, artists who used to work here, and then uh, Trevor Claxton, who was a concept artist who used to work here, and Michael Evans as well, <laughs> who's, a, who's an engineer who used to work here. We all used to, we, so we started getting together and talking about this idea of, uh, what would we make if we were a shooter, if we if we were making a shooter at Ryan. And, our first ideas were really built based around what does Riot do best, what is Riot, like, What is the concept of what we do best. It's, it's delivering sort of this tight competitive gameplay, it's around de- delivering this idea of characters, things like that, that are sort of core to the space. And we took that concept and we really merged it with something that myself and, and Steven and, 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 and Trevor for, had played a lot in our, when we were younger, which is this idea of playing a tactical shooter, you know, tight t- tactical shooters like Counter-Strike or 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 Rainbow Six Rogue Spear or things like that where uh, there's a lot of this tense gunplay and there's a really tense moments where you kind of peek a corner and get shot in the face and then you're just surprised at what happened <laughs> and 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 you really begin to think every through think through every step you take more than you do actually just kind of run around and look for targets and so that kind of gameplay was really fascinating to us so we began thinking how do we turn that type of gameplay into a game that consistently evolves that unfolds in new creativity things of that sort and that's sort of where we started more than anything else <laughs> all right so you just described how i play just run around and get shot um <laughs> yeah <that's> how we <laughs> yeah. all play the secret. <laughs> <Yeah. right. laughs> yeah.
0: so um so i kind of broke it down into three three uh three levels when we were thinking about this mm-hmm. i don't know if this is correct but uh you yeah. started off with what do we want to make because mm-hmm. you guys play these type of games and and what kind of games riot wants to make uh, you thought a lot about what do your players want to play, uh, the, the, the players, of uh, Riot's players. And, you know, pretty okay. much that's like plus 90% male audience, competitive. And then you went into like, what is Riot good at, which is the competitive gameplay and characters. So what I wanted to ask is, because you were making a shooter and everybody, every time somebody suggests, let's make a shooter, the waves of doubt hit that team oh, and say, yeah. can you make a shooter? Does it feel good? Is the moment to moment good? And that kind of, so when you described your starting team it doesn't seem, it is. I didn't hear that you had like a shooter designer. Is that something that you acquired quickly or, or how did that come to be?
2: Yeah, no, I think honestly, like when we started none of us really had an idea of like exactly what kind of like how to build the shooter. Um, we had an idea of how to build games. We'd all worked on many games before, but I think the only one of us who really knew exactly how to build a shooter was Mike Evans, who was who, an engineer who previously worked on uh, Halo. He, he was a tech director, I think, of Halo 2. And so he kind of knew where to get started. But from, from our perspective, we were kind of going in cold clean as just really, really passionate, you know, FPS players. Uh, who are also game developers looking to learn and also to develop the thing the right way that we wanted to, right? And so, yes, that was definitely kind of one of those weird moments where we're like, yeah, we have no capability really as a team to do this, but we have a starting point and we have some expertise and we're really gonna find to do. And honestly, like at the start, we didn't know if the project was gonna live. We were just very much in a space of, let's go explore something Let's see if we can discover the thing that's really going to be interesting that we want to invest all the time in. And that's, and that's really good that,
0: that you did not have, well, it's not good that you didn't have a shooter designer, but it's good <laughs> that you had the, the technical director who had expertise in making a shooter because what really, like if you dumb it down, I don't know if you agree, but if you dumb it down to the most simplistic point, uh, in order to make a shooter, you just have to get to a playable really fast and start making progress through the playable, making it better and better and better and keep playing your favorite shooters, as well as your game, just eating your dog food, so.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And honestly, like I would say the first year we spent sort of just exploring what kind of shooter we wanted to make. At our hearts, we knew we wanted to make a tactical shooter, but what that could be, we had no idea. So we tried models all across the board. We tried a lot of different things. Like some of our early prototypes are really fun to talk about because they're so weird and so 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 bizarrely off the wall. But there was definitely moments where we were thinking, "Are we wrong to be making a tactical shooter?" Uh, we knew in our hearts that that was the type of gameplay we want to create. But at the same time, who's ever like gone into that space willfully, if that makes sense? You know, um, like yeah, when yeah. you, when you, from a marketing standpoint, you're like, "Oh yeah," you see all these games shifting into the arena shooter or into the into attack into, into like sort of action based shooter, and we're over here kind of diverging left and going, "Oh man." wouldn't it be great to go back to the tactical shooter, (laughs) go back to this like really tight gameplay. And so for us, we kind of felt crazy doing that to a certain degree. And we had to talk about it internally as well, because not every team member was bought into the idea that we were actually pushing towards tactical shooters. So exploring it, really testing it like you said, discovering the gameplay together was a real strong way to bind that and really drive that vision. So, so you mentioned you mentioned the doubt that comes
0: internally. that's that's in every company. That's literally in every company that, that people doubt the team on the left and especially in the companies that are fighting for internal resources, it, it gets nasty. But um, <clears throat> what is the sort of a green light process at riot? I, I understand that you're given a lot of time and a lot of freedom to explore really creative takes because what you're trying to do is essentially the way I understand is Riot is trying to make pretty much like genre defining games because that's really what you should be doing like you can't you can't make like a top 10 game so so what is what is the uh, what is the what are those that da- like what are those reviews or green lights whatever you call them like how do they work
2: yeah, so they started, it's funny because actually I think um, it changed over time. Like when we started it, it was very different than sort of how we landed here. And honestly, I think uh, our game and Legends of Runeterra and some of the games that started a little bit earlier are, were really the test cases to figure out what is the green light process. Um, and I, I will say all, all r and games at Riot start in one fashion though, which is that we all start in a very, very like sort of dark mode, which means that the company frequently doesn't know what, what we're making when we're actually researching a new thing. And and part, this is kind of frustrating for a lot of people, but the reality of it is we do it a lot this way so that we can prote- retain a certain amount of exploration without having to broadly message Riot isn't a small company. And so by all means, whenever we start creating a new project or talking about it, it's really hard to update thousands of people you know, across, across the development studio or across the studio in general about everything that's happening inside of a project. So we wanna really preserve the ability of a team to sort of pivot and think about what they're making towards their audiences really well. So that it starts with that dark mode where everyone's just researching a thing. And this includes making multiple prototypes. It includes sort of just the idea of researching other things that are out there, discovering new ideas, really, really exploring something and then it shifts sort of into the stage what we call like um, uh, sort of pre-production, which is when we feel like we have a solid prototype and we have a solid sort of idea of what we want to do, do with this game, it shifts into a space where we're now consider how, how would we make it you know, more than anything else? So the big questions are, what kind of resources would we need? What kind of plan do we would have to actually develop the thing that's in front of us? And then from there we go through another gate, which is like this idea of what you call green light, which is very true, where we're green lighting for production. Yes. And then in production, really, it boils down to you have your plan, now go execute on making it and making it happen. Now, ideally, like all of these things are clean, but they're never they never really are. <laughs> it's really kind of like sometimes going through a gate requires multiple iterations of something or really answering a lot of questions or figuring something out. And the evolving process, like like we talked about before there were fewer questions. Now there's more questions because we've discovered a lot of things that are really important as we're going through those gates to answer, to have a good sense of before you go into the next phase.
0: Yeah, I I, I told, so go ahead, Paul.
1: Oh no, I would just add like two little vectors on top of that to Joe's point about the dark mode. The the reason why that is true is because you have to in a sense, keep the dev safe to Come up with their hypothesis by themselves and then continue to test within their own group. Rioters in general are very, very passionate players. Um, and so they come, and we're a company that thrives on open feedback and transparency. And so the moment someone knows something's happening, they want to give their opinions. They want to try it. They want to play it and be like, oh, my favorite game is X or my favorite game is Y. Have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? So while we welcome that, like you got to, you got to. Sh- you know, keep the noise out so the devs can focus. So that's so that's definitely yeah, part of the magic there.
2: And like you know, they say it's tough to like sort of kill your own ideas. You know, it's also tough to kill ideas that p- other people love. Exactly. And so, to, in order to make sure that you're able to really focus on what are you trying to do with this product, you kind of need yeah. to be in a place where you have the freedom to kill ideas and also spawn new crazy ideas without having to explain them sometimes to to an entire company to do so. So, the dark mode is really important. It makes total sense, and and here's the thing. There's there's two type of like, like it's a, it's a, almost like a
0: spectrum. The first part is like you don't have any type of process, which means there's ton of politics because you have to make sure that the people with the most, um, most clout get to get to say that mm-hmm. no 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 these guys are doing the right thing. And then there's the the full process on where you have to document a lot a lot of things and just deliver it. And what I understand is you guys are kind of in between. Like there's right. there's the silent mode. You definitely have to get certain people. Uh, excited whose opinion really about is matters. But at the same time, it's not only about that internal politics. There is actually a process. And that process gets updated as the company gets more and more information on how to make games.
1: Correct. Yeah, yeah we recently published an article from our um, VP of game design, Tom Cadwell, that, that talks about that explicitly. How you start with a small team, set of hypotheses that have been, you kind of start with the paper pitch nowadays and a very light one like a one pager that's like here's kind of the reason why we should explore this here's the opportunity uh here's the a small team of, of of humans i would need to be able to prove this out may i can i can we do this and if the case is strong you'll get that grant and you'll be able to 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 do that and then start rolling through these different phases of hypothesis validation um with that small group of, of kind of the trusted advisors, they call it the R&D Council now, and it's just a cross mix of, uh, you know, high level disciplined people with with good, I would say good taste, and and a good gut for, for both, you know, market analysis and, uh, you know, what's going to resonate, and then you work with them, they work with you, it's not just like, I must deem it worthy, it, they <laughs> literally will sit with you and be like, let's, let's brainstorm it together, let me use us as a sounding board, and so it, it basically creates this nice little incubation system, which then, you know, as you prove the viability, the, 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 I was about to say thicker questions, but I don't know why I use the word thicker, the like more (laughs) detailed questions of what are the capabilities to actually scale this? What are the considerations of, of, uh, you know, the business model and the game design model working together in conjunction? Does it feel good? Those questions start coming in, in later phases and then you kind of, and robusting and iterating that together. Yeah. So
2: Paul's describing all the fancy new tools that we have that we didn't yeah. have basically.
0: <laughs> so so since we're talking about, you know, all the help and everything, I have to ask how then a project gets killed because there for sure there are a lot of projects that yeah. were killed. Is it the internal decision where the uh, the El- I don't know why I'm thinking about the Elder Council. Paul, <laughs> oh, you got me.
1: Because <laughs> L- <Rond. I> <laughs> that's how you kind of L- disregard L- the
0: people. It's like a smart person comes in, like, listen, young grasshopper. Here are the questions <laughs> you have to answer. But um, but like, what what is the uh, the, the the killing point? Because I, in this type of process, I would assume that the killing decision comes both internally from the team as well as through the elders council why do i say elders council <laughs> i
1: mean it feels like i think it. i think when you say pressure. something
2: like r- art yeah, exactly when you say something like r d council yeah r d sounds- council elders council really <laughs> sounds better that sounds council way more, of El- way more riot sure. <laughs> well you <laughs> well you expect robes and stuff like that when you're talking about elders council yes. and none of the guys
0: uh, have that on so yeah <laughs> so so how is that decision to kill like where how yeah. does it come
1: uh, I think you I think you. you got it. I mean, it's, it's a combination of the team itself and the council. No, the council, what they're not going to do is go, you must stop. It's more like, here are your key questions that you have not answered. And the team goes, I think we can hear the next set of experiments. Let's go. Or the team goes, you know, right, we, we haven't and we don't know. I think at this point we should pivot to a new product or – you know let's sunset it and move everybody on to other problems and that has happened uh, a couple times in in the history of riot for sure definitely i
2: I think most 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 ideas die in sort of three forms one is they die in. uh one is the market the world changes you know and when the world changes basically sometimes the world doesn't fit your game anymore in the weird way of like we have no idea who would actually play this you know um so the world changes um your capability, you discover your capabilities aren't good enough. Like basically maybe the company has, doesn't isn't ready for this type of game. It's not really able to be a thing that you, we can actually do. And then the third one is, uh, we we do think it's something we can do. It does seem like it's right for us to do. We don't think we've solved how we're gonna do it yet. you know. And that could kill a game too, which is the idea of, hey, you know, we have this really cool thing that we think we should, we should accomplish, but we have no idea how it can be accomplished. And so we're probably not gonna be able to do it. You know? um, and so the, really all, all those things can happen at any time because honestly, you can get all the way up into pre-production and then realize actually as we're planning this game, this game is impossible to make. You know? <laughs> and, and, that, and when that happens, you kind of have to actually take a real, real reality step and be like, actually, this is probably not something we should make. Um, so.
0: that, that makes all sense. So let's talk about, so we got through the early concept validation phase and how to move forward, mm-hmm. how to get killed. We talked about pre-production, which is the way I understood is you make a vertical slice, essentially answering mm-hmm. all the uh, all the difficulties and answering how to actually make this game. So now you're putting in a lot of target assets. You're, uh, yeah, it's a vertical slice. You know, everybody understands. what well,
2: most of the it's, listeners understand what it it's is. Definitely, yeah. Is definitely more like of a playable loop. Yes. I think I think one of the things that we don't really do a lot in, in the thing that the vertical slice is we don't really we don't really focus too heavily upon making all the art assets look exactly as they're going to or anything sort of that you would typically see inside of an, a vertical slice to represent the creative space as much. Uh, we really do try to focus on, is it fun um, more than anything else? Because I think a lot of what happens when you when you, when you you pull a product together is the magic of everybody seeing a fun thing and then kind of ideating around it and making it happen a certain way. I think one of the biggest challenges we have is we definitely try to find the fun before we find anything else. Um, And that's always been kind of a riot thing is we always want the interactive aspect of it to be much more compelling before everything else kind of comes in. And so if if we have a game that's extremely fun, but we're still trying to discover how to make it into a great product, Mm -hmm. it's very likely that that's going to be easier for us with all of our talented staff to solve um, than it is trying to make a a really great creative product into something fun. I I
0: totally understand. There's a, there's, yeah. Some people may think, well, I think a lot of people who have worked at big companies like EA or some other ones, those big publishers, they think about vertical slice as something that they pitch to the head honchos uh, yeah. that have to see all the VFX come in. And they're like, I like the explosions and they're never exactly. going to actually play it. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And, and they're like, this game kicks ass and, and they never played. But uh, the way, the way just to describe, like the way I understand uh, vertical slice is it's the core loop. So all the elements that come into the core loop and you put that in and, and the core loop is, is essentially endless playable, uh, but you get some kind of a progression. It might not have all the progression system. It definitely doesn't have all the content, but it's the full loop of the core.
2: Yeah. I think if you took all the major features that are really important and appreciate the game and then you cut it down the middle, you know, we take a chunk of that and then say, go play that thing.
0: Yeah. Know? Okay. Um,
2: and that's usually what it is, what what our vertical slices are at, at, at Riot, Yeah, you know? which is like, for example, for Valorant, which is really funny to think back to the multiple sort of playables that we sort of created, but I think honestly our, our vertical size, if you think about it that way, it was really one map. Pro- like about four and a half characters. I always say four and a half because some of them were like slightly ill-formed when we actually did it. And then uh, you know, we had a play session where you can kind of go and play play through that experience multiple times to sort of discover the different strategies that you utilize to play against other people. But it was really pared down to what is the most essential thing to do that when we were creating it. Awesome. Mm-hmm. How many weapons? Uh, actually, all the weapons. So the funny, th- well, by all the weapons, I mean, all the weapons we thought were going to be in the core, core, mm-hmm. core of the game, which changed in terms of what actually got released, because we found some of them to be redundant, or we discovered that a couple of them were slightly different how we wanted to deliver them. But um, because that was sort of what we call part of our closed system, which is that that you kind of need a lot of weapon choices yeah. to really think about how to think about the economy part of the game. It was really something that we need to put in there too.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. That's why I was at, kind of asking like, okay, three, three and a half classes, but how many weapons really? Because that, that kicks off. Oh, I mean, I'm talking like, I know yeah. anything about Valorant, but.
1: Uh... No, it <laughs> sounds you know. like you do.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I I played it for like Valorant goes into the same category as league of legends for me. It's just, like, I just walked away. <laughs> <laughs> tft I'm, I'm a tft type of guy so i play that for several months straight every nice. day a lot of sessions awesome so yeah definitely nice. more strategy um so okay enough about <laughs> what i play so let's talk about uh the uh, the production so what is the team size what was the valorant team size when you went through the vertical slice and when you're getting this green light to move into production basically the way you understand it is production means you guys prove that this game is fun there's a lot of weapons, there's classes. We understand how it would look like with 10 classes. Um, the weapons are fun. The map is really fun. This one, you were you able to make a map that is almost infinitely playable. So we trust that you can make 10 more maps that are equally as fun, if, if not more. So now let's stack up the team and we're going we're going out. We're going at least to beta stage with, with this game. So it's it's getting serious. So can you talk about how yeah. the team changes when it goes through this vertical slides to production and essentially accelerating towards towards the uh, the, the community.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think <laughs> it's, it's one of the lessons I think that that we learned more than anything else is that um, take whatever team size you think your game is gonna require and double it, you know, is basically where, where you're at. Like in, 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 I'd say in modern sort of development, really, you really always underestimate the amount of people that you really think you're actually gonna do, need to actually create a game. And this is at Riot where half of the functions of what we do aren't even people on our team. You know, we're talking about like, there's other teams like uh, Play Sport or even our central technology teams that really provide a lot of value that don't count as like, you know, head count on our team. And so it's a, it's a sort of a complicated equation, but I will say, if you look at the very beginning, we had about five people working on it you know, for a long time. Then we sort of became 12 people. Then I would say when we we're really heavily getting into, let's build a good, por- like good portions of this game for a vertical slice, so we were about 30 people. And then we sort of hit this gray area where I think we were very confident we were going into production. So we started scaling up towards about maybe 60 people, maybe 70 people. And then you kind of hit this turning point when you're really in production, where where you're actually trying to get to production and you're starting production, where you've been scaling from like about 80 people to what we ended up with, which is about 150 people by the time we actually launched. And that is not including, of course, all the publishing staff, all of the support staff, all of the the awesome customer service agents that help people every day, all of the people who worked in anti-cheat. There's a lot of teams that sort of also had to pile in. And so if you think about it as an effort, we probably end up with significantly more than 150 people that we would consider to be our core team. But yeah, that's where it begins to scale. And I think that's the thing about production is like, the reason why we're so rigorous before getting into production is because we then begin to leverage this whole company filled with hundreds of developers who also have to pile into your game and help make that dream come true. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Exactly. So, so that's, and that's, that's why the, the vertical
0: slice exists in the sense, because you have to answer that you're actually, you know what you're making and what you're yeah. making is actually good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So before, before the company invests heavily and takes, takes a lot. Of, yeah. That's a, that's a, that's a good size of a, of a, of a, of a team. And actually pretty much what I expected like hundred and fifty was, was sort of sort of a number that I put in that I was like, ah, I bet it is this when it's when it's live. And it's currently hundred and fifty, right?
1: Yeah, definitely a complicated effort. I joined when when production really started ramping up. That was about mm-hmm. two years ago. And then there's a lot of teams that have been there a long time, and some there's a whole bunch of new people. So part of our job as producers was making sure we keep the momentum going, what needs to be delivered while onboarding the new people, including our Making the product uh, as good as it could be, coupled with we all have to work from home remotely this year to launch it, it was a really wild effort to keep everything yeah. coordinated across the multiple teams working together. And uh, it was it was effing wild, just to, to put it frankly. Um, yeah. yeah, that was
2: never part of the plan. Working from yeah. home. <laughs> that was, that was,
0: no. Yeah. So let's let's talk about that. So we got the production. We all understand what production is. It's basically. No more pivots, no more new ideas. Let's get this done. Every new idea goes to backlog and let's just, you know, follow Jira or whatever you guys use. Um, but, okay, so let's, this wasn't actually part of the question. So let's talk about working from home. How does that affect such a giant team other than insane amount of Zoom calls or, or Hangouts or whatever you guys use? And how were you kind of, how were you able to keep the momentum while everybody's at home, everybody's kind of panicking, especially in the, in the early phases, uh, you're in LA, you know, the, the situation in LA, like I've seen, it's mm-hmm. not the easiest, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, first the homelessness crisis, then the riots, um, yep. it's tough. So can you talk about that and the effect on, on, on the team and then the morale and, and, and naturally through yeah. that, the velocity.
2: <laughs> How do you begin to tell the story of like how complicated it was to release this game? Um, <laughs> I, think, I think honestly, uh, so around March when we really began to realize that we're going to be shipping this game from home and we all started going home and taking all of our gear home. Um, it really became evident to us that like, we, 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 I think everyone starts with the false hope that it's only just going to be a temporary thing and then we're all going to come back in. And we're going to be able to ship this game before before it really comes because our June 2nd date was something that we called a year before and we knew we were tracking well to hitting it and one of the scariest things when we were sitting around in sort of our, our leadership pod talking about this the the team in the game was are we going to hit our date and are, are we going to keep everyone sane doing it um because honestly we we've never built this game around crunching i don't think even when we went through launch it was really a crunch kind of thing we were actually still kind of still holding to our, our basic schedule and trying to push forward in the way that we could. And and we were afraid that does this mean working from home means we're gonna to have to crunch a lot more, it means we're gonna to have to do a bunch of other things like that to actually push through and it didn't luckily. Um, but the cost of it ultimately is you lose that social environment that you used to working in that very heavily collaborative thing and you have to kind of redefine it and build it anew. And I'm not sure we've ever Recovered as well, you know, as we were before when, when we were going into launching. But we've discovered a lot of new ways. We're hoping that we've hoped has really like helped to make that not as bad as it, it was before. Um, I, I'm a personal believer that like development is extremely collaborative and extremely synergistic related. And so, being in the same room or even being in close proximity with other people helps to create the synergy that you need to actually be creative and solve problems together in ways that you'd never discovered before. And mm-hmm having to do it over camera all the time definitely sometimes doesn't make it right. You really don't know who's supposed to be in that room sometimes. And so you invite a bunch of people and you don't really know how to communicate because you can't really communicate as a room, right? You can't communicate as a team. You have to take turns. You have to do, there's a lot of things that are just good communication practices. If you're thinking about very information-based things that don't work really well when you're in in a social environment or that don't leverage a social environment well. And I think we've lost a lot of those things, you know, just incidental communication, being able to walk to Paul's desk and you know and talk to him about something, you know, uh, just off the cuff that spawns the right idea, that spawns the right conversation, that we've lost that capability to a certain degree. What we've replaced it with though is honestly, and how we sort of ended up shipping the game and pushing it forward is a drive and a passion to really focus on how do we get things right for players you know and how do we tackle their pains as we go along so everyone's more focused on leveraging all the information that's out there whether it be social media whether it be discussions interviews things of that sort observation of gameplay things that um, or even watching esports tournaments to really focus on how do we really make sure that the experience is tightening and and getting better uh, for everybody that's out there and and i think that hyper-focus on player, player need has never been stronger than current because we're constantly talking about it all all the time. Um, Partially because we can, we're sort of exposed to it while we're working, we can have streams up, we can have a bunch of other stuff happening while we're in this work from home environment that sort of continuously feeds us all that information and lets us know. And so, in in a weird way, it sort of helped us even refine our mission further, which is this player service oriented idea but at the cost of, to some of that degree of, of social interaction that occurs inside of uh, the dev environment. So that's a very long way of saying, basically, it's hurt us.
0: Well, as did, heard. I mean, this is, this is fascinating because pretty much every, every person listening to this is, is going through these same challenges. And I can only imagine yeah. how difficult it would be to run anything other than production almost at this phase. Because yeah. if you really need that interaction to come up with new cool ideas or tweaks or stuff like that, that comes from just sitting together in a room and playing to late night, uh, throwing out ideas, even though they're kind of stupid, but what about, what if what if we did yeah. this? You know, that kind of stuff. That won't happen over, over a Zoom call. That won't happen in, in any other scenario. So Paul, can you talk about like from production perspective and of, of running pods and, and, yeah. and this, or I don't know what kind of structure do you yeah. to use?
1: Yeah, no, yeah, we use yeah, that's good. Pods, we definitely do use pods and kind of like groups of teams focused on one area, and then they're broken up into sub teams that are like pods. Um, it, you know, I'd say it's really been a an act of shifting um, uh, to be inclusive of people and how they communicate in a different way. And what I mean by that is you have to think through the types of personality types on your team, the extroverts, the introverts, and go, how do you c- call information from them in a way in this kind of strange, awkward, <laughs> like beeping heads environment. And so we on the production team have had to learn how to like, uh, in a way, be like moderators. Hey, are there any other voices from the room? Hey, I noticed someone said something in the chat. Do we want to talk about it? It's forced us to be much more mindful of of the flow of information and, and pulling that out of people. And let's like, I'll give you a small example, like a team retro, right? You did a sprint. You're going over the work that you've done. What could be better? What cannot? Usually that's an intimate environment. Groups, they they collaborate and they kind of talk about their ideas and then you do a, a moderation session. How do you do that completely remote? It's awkward. So we've had to come up with some some new production techniques to do that, especially at scale. How do you do that for a thirty person room, a ten person room? Um, so it's been there's been a lot of thought about that. Now fortunately, um, Riot has had offices doing development across. Um, across the US and and other regions for a long time. So to some degree we were used to having to collaborate with the state. We have a team in St. Louis, for example, they handle a lot of back-end software, right? So no matter what, you know, if you have to pull in the St. Louis crew, oh, we get on a call on it and then we've, we've had some of those capabilities from an IT perspective and from tooling. So, you know, it was really having to take advantage of of those things that were there and push them uh, to new levels. Um, so that's one vector. The other vector has been onboarding people remotely, which has been absolutely strange. Like I have a team, I'm working on a new feature team um, for, for stuff upcoming in the game. Um, we've had to bring on new people during the pandemic. So 50% of my team have never met in person. I've only met through zoom calls and and google hangouts and whatnot and um y- you have to it forces you to do things like we're doing a team lunch once a week on zoom or we're all gonna order or dash at x time so we can just you know talk about life or whatever's on tv or we're gonna have a team game night let's pick a game let's go play among us Let's play. like you have to like we as the production team have to for i want to say force but like kind of be a social chair in addition to just making sure the development is running smooth because we, as, as production leaders, you set the tone and the culture uh, for how the team should collaborate. So there's a lot more of having to do that. And I'd say more introverted production staff have had to lean on more extroverted people to, to do that or just figure out a way to you know, uh, to bring themselves out of their shell and vice versa for the team. So it definitely takes a lot of energy and calories in that, in that regard. And uh, it, it just takes, it takes upfront thinking and planning else, you know, you lose it and it becomes transactional and, and then you lose a little bit of the magic. of. of, of and for a everybody team.
2: who knows Paul, like Paul is the type of leader who will go out there and like invite everybody to dinner so that we'll all hang out and chat about something, you know? And so it's been, I like I'm impressed because Paul has definitely been tackling that challenge in a way that's like, you know, that's different. But it, it, out of all the people I could think of, Paul, you and probably, all, like, you and Anna are probably the two who I would imagine would have the hardest time with this kind of environment, but you both have been doing yeah, amazing
1: well we, with it. Thank, thank you for that. We're trying, like, like it, it, making games should also be fun, right? We're in the business of making be, products yeah. that entertain people, so we should be having a good time while, while doing it. And so, you know, it's 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 been a challenge, but, like, a monthly cheesecake uh afternoon has been a hit you know little things like that make a difference you know what i mean just like one team member this came not didn't come from production this came for the team we started to facilitate what are ways that you would want to do this and they're like well why don't we just do i'm just gonna in slack around afternoon i'm gonna call out i'm gonna have a coffee break if anyone wants to join me i'm gonna do that and the team came up with that you know and so facilitating that is is important but you have to you have to you kind of have to stoke the fire a bit to get people comfortable with it. And then they start uh, owning it. So it's, it's been, it's been wild. It's been, it hasn't always been easy, but yeah. we're, we're and, managing.
0: And especially like for, for the, uh, for this for your staff that has kids. And I know there's different, yep. different yep. States do it differently or not do it differently, have a different approach uh, to handling the, the COVID <laughs> in States. Yeah. So there are the States that are more, Free like Texas, or not free, or you know, how <laughs> would I put it? <laughs> well, free and Texas kind of go together, but uh, <laughs> have less is
1: restrictions,
0: yeah. Yeah, 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 let's put it less restrictions. And then there's on the other side is California, which is probably the most restrictive out of them all. Um, and I can only imagine because of your daycares being closed, the parents trying to, trying to, right. you know, yep, hand, ha- yeah. I, I can't even, yeah. know how that handles because. Like we're here, and, and even during this podcast, so I'm recording, and in, in the evening, you guys in the morning. So now in the evening, I have our kiddo. Just she probably walked in like right. five times now during, during this recording, <laughs> and this it's is tough. just yeah. fun. But if I would be coding, like, right. which I don't know how to do, I imagine that would be very difficult.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. some of the things. Oh, go ahead, Joe. Go for it.
2: Oh no, 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 I think honestly, like I mean, like there's a lot of factors, like, and one of them is that that concept of like, how do you ha- like even Anna who has her children right now and like, how does she manage her schedule and time if they're not in school and things that sort? Um, I think the most effective thing I've seen so far is that we just let them take the time to figure out the schedule they need to for a lot of cases. We're, we're really not huge sticklers on do everything the way that we wanna do it. As a team, I think we've all been forced to adapt and really figure out what them what makes the most sense. So if if you were have to work slightly different hours because you're doing a co-parenting situation where you kind of need to switch off, let's do that. You know, we we often talk just through what can we do as a team to really just right. develop and work around we, the, the issues. We're, we're all having. just human beings,
1: you know, and so yeah, we got to just be yeah. empathetic to the needs that people have of uh, in different parts of their life and uh, work around that. And so. Riot's always been pretty flexible with our PTO and and just in general, even in the office, if you wanted to work from home for a day, we had the capabilities to do that pretty regularly. So in an extension of that, it's just it's being understanding, it's delaying meetings if you if someone can't be there and just being super yeah. cognizant of everyone's needs and, and being flexible. So and sometimes it comes down to, hey, like go go do the life thing that's more important we'll update you asynchronously like yeah. there'll be notes or we'll do or we'll even record it so you can like watch it and then ask questions in the slack follow-up so it's just there's need. there's a conscious effort for empathy and understanding because what else are you gonna do right like this is a weird weird yeah. weird world we just gotta we gotta adapt
0: to yeah. it yeah uh, but and True. and you're still out of the like everybody stills work from home in california right. and, yes okay but basically you can't wait you can't wait to get back to it that would be beautiful nice. office of yours.
1: <laughs> it would be nice. Yeah. I mean, that's part of the magic is the interactions that happen natively in passing people, not only from our team, but from the partner teams or just in general from other teams and you exchange information, what's League of Legends doing? What's a problem they're facing in competitive? Let's share information, right? It becomes much harder to have those conversations when we don't have a shared space anymore. And you have to, you know, if you're new, who do you, you don't even know who to go to. If you're old wrinkly veterans like me and Joe, well, we we know everybody, we know who to talk to, but if you're a new person, that's really hard. So um, it's tough.
2: Absolutely. And I think, I think like, honestly, I I think that we were always going to prioritize, you know, keeping everybody safe first. So really until we ultra, we know ultra safe conditions are going to exist for everybody to come back. We're not going to go back. But yeah, I mean, like, if you say like, do I want that time to come sooner than later? Of course, you know, like I literally live a block away from this, uh, from the office. So every time I go on a walk, I look over and I see the office behind the gate and I'm like, man, I do miss going onto that campus. But Obviously uh, safety is our number one more priority yep. and that's what we're going to focus everything so. Yeah, so Riot is not moving to Texas like Tesla. I don't I don't
0: know. I don't even know if they did move, but that's not <laughs> happening. <Yeah. laughs> At least that was no, 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 no. Um, all right, so no. let's let's move to a more happier happier stuff. So what was really mm. unique what you guys did was the uh, the Twitch code drop campaign that was together uh, in that was in line with your launch. I don't think that was done before. I know Tarkov did a similar not. Not not really similar, but but kind of like a Twitch campaign when they launched and they blew up big. And of course, you were kind of like the uh, the the big game that really used Twitch to to launch them. So, can you talk about how that strategy came to be, and what's your take? You know, afterwards after doing that.
2: I mean, I feel like I'm going to tell this story and I'm going to be I'm going to disappoint a bunch of people because, like, really, it down to it was simultaneously the strength. Of, of, a, of a development team and a marketing team really working close together, you know? And also a weakness of, uh, of like, or like an accident that happened because our grander plan fell apart, you know? And, and the reality of it is it started from the nature of us collaborating and basically saying, hey, what's the best way to figure out how to get players into this game, right? Cause we knew the game wasn't a type of game where you create like a feature list and then you put it out there and get people excited and they come to play. It was the type of game where you had to see the gameplay. You had to really, really feel that that sort of emotion that comes from playing the game, that tension, that all those things that are sort of really valuable to really understanding how that game plays out, and then make a choice whether or not you thought that was the game for you or you wanted to like bounce and go play something else. And that's and then we wanted players to make that choice. So when, when, when I was talking with the marketing group and me and uh, the strategist on our team, Andy, how we're talking about it, we were basically thinking The only way we can really like ensure that we target the right players for this game is by having them see it and make a choice. And so we started with that idea of let's have them see it and make a choice. And so that turned into, okay, cool. Let's use it utilize streaming. We also want to utilize YouTube. We also want to utilize a variety of different services that were out there, but our, like the sort of pairing of technology wasn't ready for it in the sense where there was things that we needed from Google that I don't think were ready. There's things we needed to do to hook into like other services that weren't ready. And we had this like sort of remaining connection between Twitch and, and the Riot account system that was built off for, for Legends of Runeterra when they did it. And so we were like, oh, I, we have this idea. Let's start there. And then hopefully we can get the rest by the time we launch. And, and ultimately we couldn't get the rest by the time we launched. So we focused double down on on, on, on this idea of how do we really get people to see it through Twitch more than anything else, you know? Um, the second part of that was that we originally intended to actually make it a little bit more viral too, where uh, every time you acquired, some, like got a key, you would be able to play the game and through that access more keys to invite your friends. That technology also fall, fell apart. So what ended up happening is we got really like log jammed on like access through only Twitch which incidentally led a lot of people to be watching Twitch when in fact our intention wasn't to make everybody come and sort of wait there. Our intention was actually to have more people be able to invite other people. And so it's funny because like, I think a lot of people look at it and go like, oh man, you made such a media event out of this Twitch release. And really, honestly, it was a series of, it was a lot of good intentions, was a series of things that didn't actually occur the way we wanted it to that led to that moment happening the way it did.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely not the. Uh, well, when when you listen to Twitch telling about this as a, as one of the benchmarks, that's not how the way <laughs> they portray it. But the uh, the
2: effects are. Yeah, no, I mean, but there was a lot of good work that I was done there. I mean, honestly, like even even sort of that like connection with Twitch and sort of thinking about, hey, how do we really make sure that. For example, we, we held a developer boot camp that was like, well, or content developer boot camp that was really focused on, hey, if we're gonna have you guys show this game off, we really wanna give you guys a lot of time to sort of think about how to release that content day one, how to really partner with you to give you all the information from the developers that are really important to do that. And, and so as we really were leaning into Hey, we're gonna have people see it before they play it, kind of scenario. We really want to make sure everybody who was seeing it was really well armed with all the all the thoughts and the ideas that were there. And so that I think was a very unique thing that uh, you know our our marketing team and our influencer lead, uh, Ali, put together, and Chris Tom, who's our our comms lead, and uh, really like and uh, the entire marketing team in general with Tom Wynn and Pep and all those guys really put together. Um, a way for that to happen. That was nothing like I'd ever done before. Originally, what's funny is originally we were supposed to do that live because those plans were started before we had COVID and we were supposed to go to different regions to do that. So we were all looking forward to going to Spain and like, you know, talking to all the European European influence. but because of the COVID thing, it actually ended up being better because all of the influencers didn't really want to travel. They were actually really enjoying hanging out together and just playing the game. And we didn't have to go through the whole rigmarole of like, how do we kind of like really make it a pleasant stay experience. We could really just focus on, let's just talk about the game, let's chat about that. And so it's weird because COVID was a, like, that scenario created by COVID was actually a pleasant surprise and delight that I think led us to a better understanding of how to create a community out of your, out of like sort of the influencer community working with us.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, no, I, I didn't mean it in a, in a bad way towards Twitch. And anyhow, yeah, it's, it's it's um it like you had worked already with Twitch for a long time. And yeah. Um, yeah, it was unhappy, happy coincidence with with everything. But the thing, it was, it was just so unique because you had to kind of watch the stream to get it, which made the Val- Valorant seem so much more exclusive of a game and that kind of raised the prestige probably more than if it would have been sort of a, like a quick viral hit where everybody's playing. It was more like you're queuing up, you're watching and you're kind of learning more about the game from the streamers before you get in and you're instantly better. So I think that worked really well.
2: We actually also underestimated how we game a reform there. Like, honestly, it was humbling. Like, we, we actually, the reason why we were actually even sort of pursuing that plan was we thought that, like, the interest rate to, like, sort of acquisition was going to be lower. And so we had a certain amount of service, prepped and things of that sort. And when it went live, we actually ended up in that scenario where, where you have a long line. And, we where, like, to some sense, we actually, like, sort of likened it to, like, oh, we have a long line at the club. But instead of being able to just let more people in, we had to make the club bigger, which was, like... Literally the challenge that we ran into in closed beta, which is how do we get enough space to actually fit more people in so less people are waiting at the door, because even though it did have the exclusive effects, which was kind of fun. It also led to a really like bad effect, which is that you have a lot of people waiting outside we're very, very like player focused and we just kept imagining what is it like to watch these streams every day and not get a key so we we began jamming really heavily on how do we keep getting more and more players in so that we can actually get a lot of people through the door so it was it was definitely a challenge and and, and something that I think motivated us really strongly mm.
0: so i got two questions before before i let you go so one is yeah. that always you have to ask from riot is is how was the community involved in development of this of this game was it early on was it at vertical slice was it when you guys were in production, for sure it was before the whole keys started going out, but you're known to be very close to your community. How was community part of the development?
2: Uh, that was a really fascinating question though. I think uh, you're talking about sort of how did our community really come together more than yeah. anything else uh, as part of the development process? Well, honestly, there's sort of two parts to it. Is one is um, we we had open like sort of these testing testing cohorts that we actually worked with along the way that we were doing focus testing with. and. And some of the like some of the most interesting sort of like community members that we we could find like we worked to really make sure we weren't biasing our selection, but we were targeting people that we thought would really love the game, and we brought them in to play the game and give us feedback. And it was really an awesome experience. We did that actually across the globe, and and so running different like uh, market like different tests, our our insights team literally had to travel from here to like Europe to China to all this, <laughs> you know, to actually help to test the game with different marketing marketed audiences. But really the goal was more than anything just to hear what players were saying when they actually got into it based on other types of games is like, you know, tech confidence and a lot of information about how to iterate on the game. We also brought in like a group of players that were really like at a high level pro, like kind of like uh, like pro players to actually help us really test the concept of our game as well. And that helped us build confidence. And we took a ton of notes from that, that actually helped us refine a lot of our like sort of balance philosophy. And also some of the, the play styles that were important to actually match competitive play more than anything else. So the it's, it's sort of like different segments of the community were really involved in, in sort of how we did it. And we took sample slices to really help us target those things. <clears throat> Yeah, totally it
0: m- makes to makes total sense. It's um, yeah, different type of influencers, different points, and and I wanted to ask: Do you guys have? Does Riot has like a long list of of devoted community members that you can always pull into different games to test early, and they're sworn to secrecy? Or how does that work?
1: Uh, uh so so a couple things there. So one is like, and this kind of gets to the next point. So first of all, when we when we think of our community, it's 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 we consider those are people who actively care because those are the people who show up and they talk to you. So, you know, we definitely are, are, are in a, in a world where we want to listen and, and, and almost feel like that we just want to make it know we're human too. And there's a two-way street with our, with our players. And so what we tend to have seen is uh, throughout the different products we put out there, there are certain advocates, and, and this is, internationally you have different community members in na brazil europe right who are part of the bigger discussions part of the channels um and so they're the people who are making the fan sites are the people who are you know sometimes collaborating with us on, on upcoming stuff if we want to do reveal like there's a site called surrender at 20 that we've got a good partnership with on league and you know they'll they'll if we have a leak they'll get it first and they'll be like hey you leaked this or like oh please could you thank you well you know so like there's this l- there's this level of trust that we've built through behavior over time with the community. And so um, there are definitely, I'd say people that we've we've grown to trust over, over, over the course of the years. In general though, we can sample uh, a lot of, through surveys, the League of Legends audiences to get information about other games that we're doing. So you can be like, Hey, you're a league fan. What do you think about these things? And then in other cases we just do straight up, Good old insight surveys, where we'll find players who may not necessarily information about what are what are people doing as players and gamers in different spaces and whatnot. So um, there are definitely some trusted people that we can go to for, to get information and get feedback. There are definitely. Um, and, that, and that is true all around the world. And then there are also just the player base itself, which we can tap into and, and try to get information. But we have to take it with a grain of salt because if they are already playing a League of Legends product or they know Riot, then you know there's someone who may be more engaged and more into it than say someone who's never heard of it. So we have to look at those um, groups of information differently and, and um, uh, make an informed decision based on anything we learn from there.
0: Yeah, but but at least that that's a, that's a huge advantage to have that sort of a fan base that you can get, right. kind of like your early take from the most devoted audience. A lot of right. companies don't have that, and um and that's definitely something that any game company, in my opinion, should be building with with all their games they're making that 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 fan base that they can. Talk to when they're right. coming up with something new.
1: Something that's yeah. helped with that to build that is that every rioter has the ability to get a red name, which is like your official riot name on social media channels. Um, as long as you take a course and and you you learn a respectful way to exchange with players, but anyone can talk about anything that's happening to the public on those channels, as long as like, within guidelines, like don't talk about shit that's not yours, right? You could talk <laughs> about it as a player, right? But like if someone on some random team Oof. in a different country is like, well, Valorant is doing X, Y, Z, you're like, yo, yo, yo. Like you can talk about it as a as a player and a right advocate, but like let the dev team speak that, about it. But in so general- That sounds scary.
0: That it, sounds it, scary. <laughs> it,
1: it, it's, it's a double-edged sword, but I mean, everyone <laughs> Every, it's been true since the beginning and that like level of engagement with the audience where you know if, if someone on a social channel or on Reddit is like, uh, here's an issue I'm having with my game you might have the engineer from that team go, hey, could you send me a log or oh that's interesting and it builds this like this dialogue that I, I haven't seen in a lot of places and that in time compounds with people across the company being able to engage in that and it builds that authentic, Uh, relationship with people again to much more than just being like, you know, there are users more like, no, there are, there are, they're, they're almost like our, our confidence, our, our trusted our trusted players, like we should pay attention to what they have to say and how we can serve them. It's a real frontline focus methodology. And not everyone mm-hmm. gets it right. There's definitely people who've gotten bought for it. You know, I've definitely put myself in a place where I've made promises that I couldn't keep and have had to pay the price and walk it back to players. But um, in general, I think it's done more positive than the negative and we just learn from that so yeah yeah
2: i also think well, sometimes we just get you know really amazing hires that actually help to make this this process even better like for example on the design team i know we got sal who who sell who actually came from the cs community and sal is like but not just an insanely talented sort of map creator who worked in sort of map, map creation on on, on on uh on cs but he also has like a, he's a former pro player. So he has a lot of connections in terms of actually like sort of who he, his community that he had developed, he had been part of uh, as part of CSO. Being able to leverage different developers and sort of the communities they tap into really helps us also get a more intimate experience from those communities that are outside of League of Legends. Cause I think we've built a big community around League of Legends and sort of the players of League of Legends. But when, especially when you're jumping into a shooter or something new, you're really expecting a lot more communities that have potentially even never really played League or even right. jumped into League to really right. be part of that experience. So finding that I think is really about tapping into the network step of, of who we are in a weird way <laughs> because as developers, we're so focused on on games that we've all created our own communities that sort of like helped to reflect some of the passion that we have. And so leveraging that is a huge part of, I think Riot's strength. Yeah, no, I I
0: totally understand. It's just every time I think about Twitter or anything, like, I'm afraid (laughs) to tweet
1: anything. Yeah, yeah. It's tough.
2: I mean, like, I always look at Twitter, like, from one angle, which is basically, I mean, like, I totally understand the fear, you know. Um, I always look at Twitter from one angle, which is that the way that people communicate as... As they're passionate about something and sometimes they don't have the right words to say to describe what they're trying to tell you, but they have an emotion right. And and so whenever I'm looking at a Twitter posts like I'm actually just thankful that a lot of people are being passionate about our game and care enough to actually even sort of be angry or even be frustrated by what we're doing. Do I wish people phrase things a little bit better, of course, I think everybody <laughs> does, you know, but at the same time. I'm also very, uh, like, you know, like very, very thankful for the fact that so many people really, really pay attention to the game and love it. And so it's kind of a double-edged sword in that sense. Yeah, Yeah.
0: I I wouldn't want to be in Riot's comms. Like like (laughs) anything can happen. He said, what?
1: Yeah, (laughs) it could be be an intense
0: job. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, All right. So last question. Um, Let's talk about Valorant's growth. Like what can we expect from Valorant in the future in terms of, New updates, new content, esports. I'm sure esports is coming back big as soon as, as soon you know, maybe next year when we get the vaccines going and everybody is you know <laughs> getting back to stadiums. Uh, like, what's what's going on? What's going on with that?
2: I mean, uh, there's a it's a ton. It's hard to start somewhere, but uh, if I start somewhere, I mean, right now, for example, we're right now we're running first strike sort of uh, qualifiers that are leading to the first strike sort of uh, tournament, which is really a tournament focused on the idea of kicking off the start of. Uh, sort of our involvement in eSports. And that's going to be happening across multiple regions, I believe, like, yeah, like across multiple regions. Right now, any qualifiers are definitely happening. uh, And I was watching some yesterday. Um, uh, uh, That's part of this. So our future, definitely, we have a lot of eSports plans that I don't know if we're fully ready to share, but we're definitely committed to doing something fun on that front. Honestly, I think there's a lot of things that have to do with evolving our product that we're not even fully happy with where they're at and we're totally listening to players about how they wanna be pushing it. So we have some rank changes coming in that just came in with Act 3. We have even more rank changes that are coming in with episode two that we've already talked with the audience about. Um, obviously, new is definitely things that are gonna challenge what you already know inside of the game because we're always looking to evolve and establish something new inside of the game. Uh, new maps. Um, definitely we're looking at new maps, um, some of which are also going to challenge what you think about it in terms of the game. Um, um, but yes, yeah, so, and also new features and and even exploration into like sort of how we deliver uh, new experiences inside of inside of um, Valorant as well. So all of it's on the table. I can't talk about specifics, but I can say that it's gonna be a pretty exciting year, year next year. Um, I know Paul's team also has something really exciting to, to 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 deliver next year, and we can't talk about that just yet. But once, once, once it happens, you'll know what he's talking about. So yeah. All right. We'll so, see.
0: We'll see. So a lot of good stuff. Um, seems like you're building a lot of new features. You guys yes. have op, upcoming like open positions or or um, yeah. Yeah. What's are you staffing up or or holding oh, off yeah. until the COVID? What's going on there? Okay. So. Go,
1: Joe. You got a lot of openings. I know uh, you do. Uh,
2: so the 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 reality is, I think we're still growing, um, and, and I I, mean, I know we're still growing. I don't yeah. even think it. Uh, there's going to be a lot of um uh, of posts that are opening on almost every single team. Uh, if you're very if you're interested in working on Valorant, if you're passionate for developer or, or somebody who really has an interest in working on Valorant, just uh, the the best way to find out is actually to go to the Riot Careers site and then look at the Riot Careers and filter by Valorant, and you'll see a lot of posts there. that sort of are a bunch of opposite up- positions there. Um, I know Paul's team has a bunch of open positions that are coming we up too, really so <laughs> yeah. So I'm definitely also double-plugging Paul's team here, which is Thank you. a lot of people, yeah. Uh,
1: but in general, every discipline, so we need design, we need UX, we need engineering, uh, uh, both the senior level as well. There's opportunities for a couple more junior positions, but like we're going big we're going big and we continuing are. to invest in the product and continuing to learn from uh from the players and just in general like from the health of the product itself what we need to do and in order to achieve big goals for next year and continue to grow it we're gonna need we're gonna need we're gonna need humans we're gonna need yeah, humans yeah. you're down so no, we, we're we have for.
2: big guys we have a huge appetite for what we want to accomplish and we definitely need a lot of people to like help us accomplish that um and so if you've got the passion please come out and apply all right, will add the uh, the link in the episode
0: notes and um yeah be on a lookout and listen to this for everybody who listened to this podcast and now know the uh, the origin stories now they've actually heard you guys talk so when they eventually join the team even if it's work from home they at least know it. Yeah, yeah. It I agree. Yeah. <laughs> all right guys i want to thank you so much for for coming in on the podcast uh, truly appreciate spending this this hour with the hour with you and, and learning more about the uh the Valorant. I can't promise I'll be playing it because I suck at Valorant. <laughs> and
1: I'm I terrible at it <laughs>
0: You know, my my, my form of, of, of okay. shooter is is still World of Warship, the slowest first-person shooter out there. So <laughs> so Valorant is like yeah. it's like a hyper speed. <laughs> but um <laughs> good, yeah think
2: about we won't it first, totally don't worry yeah. <laughs> all all I'll,
0: I'll i'll try i'll try I'll, I'll find somebody to to um to carry me and then maybe maybe it will work for that's more. the secret
1: that's that's my secret just yeah. always play with five people four people better than you on your team and you just let them let them handle it all right guys yeah. so, so
0: find me on linkedin if you want to carry me let's do it yeah, <laughs> but,
1: yeah that's, that's all right good. that's the secret all
0: right thanks everybody for listening and Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Joe.
1: Of course. Thank you so much for
2: taking the time. Thank you. Thank you.
0: All right.